Welcome, everyone, to the podcast. Uh, my guest today is Kristen Keffler, who has been really on the cutting edge of the shifts that have been occurring and continue to occur uh, in the area of family wealth advising. In fact, I first met Kristen over a decade ago when we were both part of a group called the Council for Shared Leadership. So, you know, we've got kind of a history here of <laughs> growing up together in the way some of these shifts are happening. Um, so first, Kristen, welcome to the podcast and thank you for being here. Thank you, Rod. I'm excited to be here. So before we get started, if you haven't read Kristen's book, The Myth of the Silver Spoon, I'm thinking you need to go get that now and read it. It's a, it is a really good book, and, and you've probably seen some stuff from us, uh, if you've seen any of our stuff, about it. So Kristen, having writ written a book or a couple, couple of books, and now you've written a book, that's a big endeavor. So yeah. what was it that kind of drove you to decide, okay, I'm going to take this on? Yeah, that's such a... It, it is such a big endeavor. It's one of those things I think that um, I am, I'm, I knew that it would be big, but I'm so glad that I didn't actually fully understand what it would take until it was done because I probably wouldn't have started if I really knew what it was going to take, right? right? Like one of those things that like you just take one bite at a time. And, um, but for me, the, the, you know, there was a couple of elements that really came together that that made it feel very important to take on this this gigantic project. And that is <clears throat> one was after having spent, you know, nearly two decades um, working with rising generation family members and having such a heart for them, for that for that demographic, for that experience and seeing how often the the there are there are obstacles in their path that are so um, unacknowledged, you know, the tripwires right. that we nobody talks about, nobody, and and so they don't they themselves don't even want to acknowledge, but they just kept kept keep tripping on them. And I, after years of seeing that and knowing, like I can work in it, you know, my uh, my ability to have impact is only as great as as the people I can work with. But if I can actually zoom back and and capture what I'm seeing happening in my client work regularly and capture it in a way that could actually be more widely digested. I might be able to have a little more impact in shining a light on some of these tripwires and saying like, it doesn't have to be this hard. And that, that message is one that is for the rising gen it's for their parents and it's for their trusted advisors. Like there's a whole ecosystem that, that, could use that message that could, you know, be educated there. So there's, so that was one piece was the idea of like, well, how could I actually impact more people in a positive, hopefully useful way? And, and then the second one was, you know, I went back um, and got a, another master's degree in the mid 20 teens In 2017, I went back to the university of Pennsylvania and got their master's in applied positive psychology, which was like, okay. had been a bucket list thing for me for a long time. I just was so passionate about the field and about learning in that field. And, um, and one of the, you know, one of the requirements of graduating with a, with a master's degree is, is research. And so the research that I designed for my thesis was on exemplar rising generation family members. So it was really like rising gen who are at the top of of the um, span of uh, potential, right? It's okay. like rising gen who are thrive, who itself name that they're thriving, who are engaged in their lives, who who really feel like they found a way to integrate wealth and their family money story well, and that they are claiming their own lives and living amongst 
their, um, their family dynamics well. And after having done that research, some of the, the, the key findings I felt, I just felt were really important. It's like the, when we could, so I was looking for what character traits and skills support a rising gen to thrive. Like if we could name some number of core character traits and skills that parents can parent for, and right. that, that we know provide the scaffolding for a rising gen to have a higher chance of being successful in their adult life. Like, what are they? And, um, and after doing that research, I just felt like this is information that parents should have, that advisors should have, that rising gen should have, because ultimately, like, this is at least part of a roadmap to support them to really be, to, to be the things that we all want them to be, right? To, to claim their own life, to be excellent stewards of the wealth they have to be contributors and not just consumers. And um, so it, it felt important to, to like figure out how to get it out there. And then I, I guess I will say, finally, there, you know, it's, we all have our own, our own path. And th on my path, doing something like this felt like it felt really important to dig deep, find my voice, find my message, and to, to give to my goal with this book was to try to thread the needle between between the message of, you know what, there there are actually hidden tripwires and difficulties to mm -hmm. being raised in affluence, but not but to not say and and we need to all feel sorry for kids who are raised with privilege. Like the, it's a tough needle to thread, but it felt really important to me to figure out how to do that hurtfully. Yeah. And it's there's so much of it that is just subliminal. I mean, there's there's so much that we don't talk about. It's just and and both generations um accept it because they don't they don't look for it i mean you know they don't know even though it's there in some cases right. so yeah no i think that's I, I'm, okay so now having heard that i think you nailed it so we can you know in the book because because really it is um when i first when i first uh started reading it i i was thinking well this is going to be more for the rising gen than it is for the parents but it's not i mean yeah. there it's all woven in there because parents don't most parents don't want to hurt their kids right not. and you know and they're trying to do the best they can they just don't have a clue and right. you know and so and they're worried in some ways i think a lot of the, you know i can relate to that generation probably more than you can because you know I'm, I'm old but uh there's a lot of us that, that when we're, we're going i don't want to make the mistakes that i would make if i would have been in this position and so we yep. project yep you know and it's so much different now. I mean, you know, baby boomers learn different than millennials who learn different than XYZ. I mean, all yeah. of this is changing over time, which is the other thing that I think is really relevant to, to, to the book is it isn't it isn't a snapshot in time. It's something that's going to keep going as time goes on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and you bring up a point I hadn't really actually thought about that. But like the uh, the book is written. I mean, obviously it's timestamped 2022. And so there's some, there's some relative frame around that just because I'm writing in this time period, but the, what I, what the core of the book is really about character traits and skills that are enduring, right? right. It's, it's not like, oh yeah, those Gen Xers, they're missing this or millennials are missing that. It's more like, these are character traits that all humans Right. need to develop over time and and hit these developmental milestones like we we all have a path of de of lifetime development and there are milestones that we need to hit they just there happen to be a lot of milestones 
between birth and say 25, right? The, the milestones sort of spread out developmentally speaking. Yeah. As we get older, but um, these are enduring traits or these are enduring um, milestones that, mm-hmm. that people need to be able to meet and overcome. And so in that way, I hope that the information is very evergreen. Right? Evergreen. Like, yeah. No, it really, yeah. And that is one of the generations. It isn't a, it isn't just a, oh, this is the cool thing for today. Right. I mean, this isn't yeah. evergreen. Yeah. So when you, um, by the way, how long did it take? <laughs> now I'm just yeah. curious. That's always the funny, the funny question, right? Like, um, so I, I'll, the short answer is I first decided I, I wanted to write this book in mid 2019 and then spent a year and a half working with a, a developmental editor to try to like figure out like what is the message. Um, ultimately, she, that we did great work together, but we um, we decided we just we needed to like we'd done the work we could do together, and we okay, started yeah. and um, and I started working with a new um, editor, and it took us a year of of capturing all the previous work and writing a proposal um, that I submitted and eventually got Wiley to bite. Um, I wrote the proposal in the first three chapters in like eight months. <clears throat> and then um, Wiley came back to me in 2022 and said, yep, we want it. And between February 15th and May 15th, basically, <laughs> I wrote the entire rest of the book. So it was like, in some ways it was like, yeah, I wrote it in like three or four months. And in other ways it was like, a multi-year project. Yeah, this is, yeah, those don't happen in, the, the last three or four months is one thing. It's right. all the stuff it takes to get to that last three or four months. That is the truth. <laughs> so um, well, let's just go right to the, the title, The Myth of the Silver Spoon. What is the myth of the Silver Spoon? Yeah, so so the myth is that that being born into wealth erases any problems that you might encounter, that that wealth itself is the is the major problem solver. and. And the thing is, and we know this, you're the, the people listening to this podcast, like they they've lived it, right? They see, they see in their clients that that money doesn't solve everything. And um, and yet we have we continue culturally to have this pervasive belief that that money is is the major problem solver. It's the and, answer, yeah. Yeah, that's the answer. And and we know we know from the research that there's no doubt that money makes things easier and um but that's only to a point and that at some point there you know there's we talk about the inverted u that in behavioral economics the the idea of the inverted u curve meaning that there's there's really no such thing as an unmitigated good so it, you can you can continue and money conforms to that money and parenting conform to that where there's this idea that you can continue to have life be easier as you're going up the economic curve. Um, you know, if you can provide food and shelter and a safe environment, like there's no doubt that parenting is easier in that in that terrain than it is when you don't have food security and shelter, et cetera. But like, there's a point at, at which that parenting doesn't continue to just get easier because you have more and more money. And in fact, it tables off and starts to decrease because money becomes can be a a buffering effect right it can it can ultimately end up being a proxy for love and attention and boundaries and because it it can quote unquote solve lots of those problems but ultimately creates underlying issues if parents aren't really parenting from a place based on their values not based on their economics and 
And so, and in that, so that's one one piece of the myth. And another piece of the myth is this idea that that being raised with wealth, just like you know, you're born on third base, and that ought to be good enough. And like, go go, you know, make it home. And I I feel like so often there's there's all these psychological elements that that are at play and family dynamics that are at play when you are the child or the grandchild of a big thinking wealth creator and how that plays out in your own story and your own um, sense of self and identity is very significant. Um, but there's not really a lot of safe places for someone who is born into affluence to really go unpack those things because you know, as one of the the titles of one of my chapters is like, no one wants to hear the problems of a rich kid. So the right. idea that you might have some tangly feelings about all of this, like, where the heck do you go untangle them? Yeah, the, the poor little rich kid. What can you know? What can they have a problem with? Right. And you know, and, and that that growing up, it to me part of it is uh, whether it's a public rich or not public rich. I mean, you know, if, but if you, grow, I, I have one family I was talking to, and as we were working with the kids. The dad said, we're doing this because not every kid grows up in a city where buildings are named after their grandfather. Yeah. You know, and and everybody knows you. And you're under a microscope and you know it. Totally. You know? And yeah, and there is a you you bring up a really great point that there's this, there's the element of the prominence, like prominence in a community that adds a whole other layer. Right. To like there's there's the the grow up with wealth, but have it be sort of like, no one really knows your name. And, and, you know, maybe there's a projection about what it means to be wealthy from the, from classmates or people who see where you live or what you drive, but there's a different, there's a whole different kind of umbrella around that when it's like, your name is the name in the community that everybody knows. And then they project onto you what it means to be from that family. Right. And now you've got, yeah. <clears throat> and when you're a kid growing up, I mean, you bite into that. I mean, it's really hard not to try and live into yeah, what how everybody's. Do you, how do you not? How, totally. How do you find your? How do you find your voice and your sense of individual identity when you're like raised in the soup? That <laughs> right? Like it, I and I, you know, I see it. Um, I see it happen frequently, and I think it's actually a very healthy. It can be a very healthy thing for uh, for rising gen to like go to school in a far. Oh away yeah. Place. Right, like it was yeah. uh, these two girls. Then the first thing we were talking about is we're going to go to college, and it was as far away as we can. I mean, yep. where no one knows our name. Yep, and uh, I think it can be really healthy. I think the place where that where it's not healthy is if there's just a running, right? And not not really the work of identity forming that needs to happen. So that because eventually it's kind of you know it's very much the hero's journey. It's like right. you you go out on the venture to become who you are. But in order to actually be fully integrated, you also have to be able to come back home. Right. And as that transformed person who knows who you are, who knows your voice. So, um, yeah, that stuff's it's big. It's like a lot to try to sort through and think about, like, developmentally where kids are when they're, like, in their late teens and they're just at this place of trying to figure out who they are separate from their family. But then to have a family name and presence that's so big, it's like, well, how do you even go about defining who you are separate from that? Right. Right. And it's enough to deal with when you're in the teens to just deal with life. Right? <laughs> you know, you put yeah, this... Anybody who's parents of teens, anybody who's been a teen knows yeah. that like, like that it's a big time of life. Yeah. 
<laughs> um, so now just let's talk to the advisors, okay, so our, to our yep. uh, people here. Um, how can an advisor, well, let's talk both with positive and negative. How can they support or maybe unwittingly sabotage, um, it's particularly the rising gen family? I mean, those those family members who are really trying to do, to be who they are. Yeah. I, you know, I think it's such a, it's such a great question because we as advisors have so much more influence than we think. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I feel like there's this, um, we, all of us, every human brings to each situation we're in our own set of life experiences and hidden biases and kind of, we, we have our own wiring that we're bringing to every client interaction, right? And um, the more that as advisors, we can be aware of the lived experience of a rising gen, the more we can actually help create the space for them to become, to become who they are, to, to see the tripwires. One of the things I, I see happen more quite often is that advisors in from an unconscious place, I don't think I've never met an advisor who would intentionally do this, but we or advisors can orient themselves first to the wealth creator, very right. often the patriarch, right? That's the person who hires them, pays their bills. So like we get oriented to that person of power and then we can internalize their narrative about their family. And so if they are worried about, uh, you know, my kid's not, my kid's not plugging in, they're not taking action, they're not gritty. We can internalize that as the truth rather than seek our own information to really understand what might be going on for this, for this emerging adult or this, this kid. Right. And so then we say like, look, that kid's not like, they're not, they're not plugging in. We, we can't, now's not the time to give them information about, you know, the estate or to like, they, they we need to make sure that we ring fence this to, to, until they light up and start to, to motivate themselves without ever stopping to really unpack the, what's going on for that kid and what it might be like to be the, the raised by this father or this mother in this situation and what might be some of the clutter we can help them clear or point them in the direction of clearing so that then they can find their own path. And ultimately in doing so, they can, they will, they will self-motivate that it'll come from a place of intrinsic drive to become, because we all have that. Um, so I think that there is an, a way that as advisors, we can sabotage by not, by bringing our own biases and saying like, yeah, right. You know, money ruins kids, you know, trust fund babies, you know, we, we can sort of have our own bias about that and then project that onto families. And two, we can um, unwittingly just organize ourselves around the person who's paying our bill and um, and then internalize what they're saying as the truth and not really give the space for their kids to to have their own experience and their own voice and their own voice within the family. Right. One of the things that I'll and then I'll I'll end on this this particular question you had mentioned before we started recording today this idea of kind of um flipping a family meeting upside down where it's this opportunity for the rising gen to speak first right and and you ask the parents or and or grandparents the people with the power in the room to sit back and listen and wait and 
those kinds of techniques are so powerful in starting to give room for an emerging adult or an adult child to move out of being a quote unquote child and into being an adult, to use their voice in that space. Um, so I think those kinds of things we can, as advisors, we can do all sorts of things like that in order to shift the experience for families. And it goes both ways. I mean, you can also shift the the experience for the parents sometimes. I mean, I had, I had one parent, this guy was real successful, started his own business and all of that. He had two kids. I knew one of them because he was, he was the heir apparent for the company, right? He was the golden child. And then there was the artist. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know the artist's name for a while. I mean, mm-hmm. he's just the artist, you know? And he just, and I didn't get the artist and stuff. And so then I asked him one day, I said, so your dad had a really successful business. And he goes, yeah. And I go, why didn't you go into that business? He said, I want to make it on my own. I didn't want to be like my dad and just be, make it because my dad had money and he did a good thing. I said, cool. As between your two sons, which one is more like you in that way? And the look on his face, he just got totally blank. And he goes, son of a bitch, it's the artist. Wow. And I was like, huh, how about that? And it completely shifted him. And all of a sudden he realized, you know, he's doing what I did. Just his business is different than mine. What a powerful. It was a a 45 second conversation. But the shift that that made in his attitude towards his son, which then shifted everything. I mean, now his son was like, what do you mean you accept me? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And what a powerful thing for you, Rod. Like, I I love how you can name that story and see how you, like, that is the, that's the quintessential, like, as advisors, we have more power than we think. And it's, or more influence than that kind of moment where it was like a micro flip, but it was tectonic. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it is those moments. It's not like this is a big thing. You know, a lot of times it's a lot of times it's just moving from a truth to the truth and the truth to a truth. I mean, you know, that's, that's, I know that's your truth, but you know, let's let's accept it here. Yeah. I think the other thing, and, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about this when we go into most families, and we're the advisor and they know mom and dad are paying for us. And, you know, uh, and particularly for me, because generally speaking, if there's a problem in the family, it's with the dad, who's the white old man. Right. I mean, so I walk in the room and I'm an extension of that. Um, How is it that, that you build that relationship so that the kids know you're their advice. I mean, you're there for them, not just for mom and dad, because that's a huge shift. It is a huge shift. And I, um, I, so what I have done for, a very long time, maybe, maybe really since the beginning, because, because I entered this work coaching, doing individual coaching with rising gen, right? So my, my comfort level and also like my, my, where I felt like that my greatest strength um, was at least at the beginning was connecting with and supporting the rising generation. And as my practice expanded over time and I saw the real need to work with whole families because family dynamics are so powerful to for me like I I definitely had a wake-up moment in in watching a family meeting not you know for the first time not being in my own family meeting but watching someone else and seeing how the rising gen I was coaching but the three of them like all just devolved during the course of this meeting and I was like oh my gosh the like this family dynamic is huge like I need to be able to work on that and so moving into that the space of the family dynamic, one of the things that I have taken with me from my individual coaching days is 
um, interviewing every key stakeholder in the system before starting to, to define the plan of how we're going to work. And in doing so, I, there's the opportunity to build social capital with every person. There's the opportunity to, to give sort of that direct line of communication to the voices that are quieter or tend to, to just not show up. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I found that that starts to create a little bit more sort of gravitational force for those rising gen. Um, the other thing that I have, that I've started to do, and it took a, it took a moment of courage for me at first, um, but I've now found it to be so effective that it doesn't feel courageous. It just feels right, which is to go to the most powerful voice in the room early on in the process in the discovery process. Usually it's the dad, usually, you know, like it, it, it's sort of your typical patriarch and to um, ask permission to speak the truth to them. To, I mean, and generally our clients, I think, think we're going to speak the truth to them. That's our role. Right. But for me, it gave, it has given me permission to, to then do it, to say at the very beginning, to say, you know what, very often it is, it is difficult for family members or advisors to, to really reflect back what we see happening to the most powerful person in this system. And, um, I'm asking you for your permission for me to do that. Like, and every single time I've gotten the like, right. oh my gosh, yes. Like, <laughs> and they, cause they realize that in many ways they're in an echo chamber, right? It's they have the people around them who will, who will give them the feedback that they want to hear, not necessarily the feedback they need to hear. And um, so I think that's another way to help sort of create uh, connectivity that's beyond just the, the matriarch or patriarch um, and to start to equalize the power. You know, that's, uh, that is so true. I mean, now you and I are very different on how we approach things. You're much more, you know, the counselor type than I am. I'm the director, right? But one of the things I tell my clients from the very beginning is, okay, number one, subtlety is not one of my great strengths. And if there's something I think you need to hear, I'm going to tell it to you, even if it's going to get me fired. Yep, I love it. And it sets up now. Lori says it completely different than I do. (laughs) But both ways, having that relationship so that you can do that. And then we do the same thing you do. We have a call individually with all the kids. So now it's them. Yep. And and a lot and part of that call is so what would you like to see happen? When was the last time that they had a professional ask them that question? Yep. I mean, you think about it, if they've had a family meeting, it's probably when the advisors are coming in and telling them what's going to happen to them, right? It's it's not a, you know, and just, it's been amazing to me how much just that question being asked it, even if they don't have an answer. I mean, you know, and a lot of times it's like, wow, let me think about that. I, you know, you know, it, it builds that. And it's, it's those building blocks. It, like you said, it's that, it's that step first step in that builds that relationship and, and, they understand that you're not just there to to be mom and dad's you know voice or whatever mouthpiece yeah Yeah, mouthpiece you're there for them um that shift in both sides is huge because if the if the parent and if the if the dad or mom says no i don't want to hear that um that's that's a really big sign yeah yeah that's a that's a pretty big flag right right and i i think that that technique you know, as I am at the idea of like interviewing, interviewing all family members and asking the rising gen, like, what would you like to see happen? 
that question is so rarely asked of those family members. And like the idea of they probably often don't know because they haven't actually had to think about it themselves. And so there's like this whole coming online of their own brain and thinking, not just being told what to do and how to best fit in to the plan and the system that is designed, but instead what would be meaningful for me from this, which really is a, it sparks psychologically speaking this, you know, the idea of agency, the the personal agency, the idea that we might have control over our lives is a fundamental thing that must be present for people to actually self-actualize, for for people to show up and start to have intrinsic motivation and to um, to claim their own lives and their own paths. And so often, rising gen don't have much agency inside the system of their family and at the family's estate plan, right? They they can claim agency outside that, like like the artist that you right. just right. right, but that but inside it. Very often it's like, there's this top down, it's set, like you just got to like play your part. And you asking that question starts to flip that bit, which I think is just brilliant. It's uh, one of the guys who work with Jerry Nergi, he, he's his question that he asks his clients is, so are you planning with your kids or at your kids? So good. Which I think is a brilliant question. Because so he, he said, they'll go, whoa, you know? Yep. Because they have been planning at their kids. You know? So as, you know, as a as a trusted advisor, what can we do best to support a family? I mean, both parents and the kids. I mean, what are those kind of things so that they can flourish? Just what are some key key points? Yeah. Well, one of them, and I I think there's so there's so many things, right? We've touched on a number of them in terms of just even how you facilitate and how you build a relationship so that there isn't you're not reinforcing the hierarchy and the biases that already exist you know, prevalently. So I think we've touched on some key things already. The other thing that I think is really interesting and really powerful, um, but it, it definitely flips things on its head, but it is a, it is a well, 3.0 kind of paradigm shift. Uh, it, it fits within that paradigm shift of well, 3.0 is we have spent so many decades, lifetimes really optimizing around financial capital, right? right. And we it, it's not that optimizing around financial capital protection preservation growth is a is not a no, a good goal right like that's it is a absolutely fine wonderful goal i think the the thing that i've been really interested in, to be in conversations with family recently seeing what shifts for them is when we also like genuinely put human capital family relationships at at the true center and then say Okay, as we think about your planning and the ripple impact of that planning to others, there may be moments that there's a trade-off of enhancing or giving a nod to the human capital that may actually have some financial cost, right? So I think right. about one example is with the prenuptial agreement and, and the prenuptial process. It, I, I have, I've developed a, a process called the positive prenuptial process that is intended to help couples navigate the prenuptial process with more knowledge and really get to the heart of their own values and be educated when they're working with their attorneys. And it's been, it's been really effective. Um, I have couples that like have done wonderful work and navigated that process with less pain. And yet every single couple, when I debrief with them after the actual signing says, 
it hurt more than I thought it would. Like there, there was still pain there. The scars are still there. And, um, and it's, it's really made me wonder how, not that prenuptials are bad and not appropriate, but are they appropriate in every situation? Is there a way to actually bring the humanity into it where the partner coming in may also have a nod or some, some sense of like, we're not ring fencing everything from you. That, and and there may be some there may be some money that's at risk when you when you do that when you right? do it that way yeah yeah um but relative to the to the amount the pot that most people have is the rent money that's at risk it's just a trade off and yeah, I think is, is it yeah is it worth what you could lose here to gain the confidence and the you know the trust and everything that goes on the other side yeah like to really give this couple a chance to. Right. To like start equal footed and to find their way into the relationship, knowing that their relationships do fail and they do succeed. But if we don't, if we're already setting them up to have, you know, generally at, at a very tender age in their 20s and they're, they probably don't have a lot of language and experience in talking about emotions and money and power dynamics and so you're you're already like layering on this very big thing when they're just trying to build the skills to be a couple and to learn the things that we've all had to learn to figure out how to cup to to be in partnership well. That's just an example, but I think the idea that as advisors, if we might bring in more options and knowing that there's plenty of times that it can be a win-win. You can optimize financial capital while still optimizing human capital. And there may be times that that you may want to consider a trade-off and think about the downstream effect and then and then be okay with it. If you're like, yeah, I'm okay to lose the down payment on that house I'm going to give my daughter when she gets married because like, I don't need to go, I don't need to go protect everything. Yeah. And Lori is really good about helping when we're doing that with families is, is reframing it as this is an investment in the, in their couple. Love it. You know, and that's, you can talk about investment. <laughs> okay, now we're back. You know, mm-hmm. It's not an expense. This is an investment. And and that, I think that's a huge thing. Okay, so, so we're running out of time here. So, you know, what are kind of the, the two things that you want people to get from the book? I think there's kind of like two elements for me. One is this heightened conscious awareness of the landscape of being raised with wealth. And I think that as, a, as advisors, we circle that and we we think we know. And what I wanted the book to do was through the narrative of client, I mean, these are all client stories, right? They're either research subjects from my research or they're client stories from from my time, you know, from the last two decades of work. And I want there to be this like lived experience, felt sense of how it gets tangly because the subtlety, it's really in the subtleties that, that it can a rising gen can suddenly be in a situation where they are very, very stuck. So one is this is just really a sight line into that. And two is the takeaway that as advisors, we have so much influence and how we impact the family system from how we frame questions to um, to recognizing the biases we we're bringing to the table, to how we can coach parents the way that you just described in that story where the patriarch and his artist son and that like, yeah, maybe, you know, there's, it, that was like you said, 45 seconds and then it flipped the script inside that dad's head. Mm-hmm. If you hadn't been there in that moment with that awareness and, you're in, and used your influence in that way, 
what would be the outcome? I, I don't know. Yeah. It sounds like it's a much better outcome today. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so I think those are kind of the, for for this audience, for your listening audience, that those are really the takeaways. I would want this like real lived, felt understanding of what that situation is like and why the subtleties, why the nuanced psychological experience can get so cluttered. And then two, to recognize that that our influence is so significant. And, and that second point, I think, one of the things that I was reading through it and it was reminding me with just sometimes our influence is because we don't do something that we could do. Right. If we just let it kind of go go by and not being aware of the fact that by doing that, we're supporting whatever the norm was in the family. Uh, yeah. And so you know, we really do have a responsibility to be the family's advisor and not any particular subset of the family. I totally agree. I do hope people who listen to this that if they don't, if they're not incentivized now to go buy the book, they <laughs> didn't listen, I guess. So, yeah, because yeah, it's it really is a great book. So, thank you very much, and thank you for taking the time. Absolutely, my pleasure. 